drums, please. Hi, it's me, Ash Kanazi, your favorite North London Jewish queen. I am here to bring to you the secrets from the pink room. Pink room, pink room, it's the pink room, pink room, pink room, with Kanazi. Pink room, pink room, it's the pink room, pink room, pink room, not the stink room. Hi, my bubblers! It's me, Ashkenazi, reminding you that the key to success is by sniffing poppers. Welcome back to the Pink Room, the queerest backstage since David Cameron did that thing with his penis and that dead pig. The ass politics. My guest this week is the wonderful Charlie Steen, lead singer of Shame and all-round bosom buddy. Some Shame Wikipedia. Shame is made up of five boys, Charlie, singer, Charlie, drummer, then Josh, Sean and Eddie who kind of run around and play various handheld things. They released their first album in 2018 with the title Songs of Praise, effectively creating a new hymn book for the excommunicated. They recently released their second record, Drunk Tank Pink, which you will hear more about later. In our conversation, we discussed spontaneity, weight insecurity, the South London music scene, and that time we went to Spice Girls at Wembley. So here it is, Charlie Steen in the Pink Room with me, Ashkenazi. Charlie Steen. Hello there, beautiful. Welcome to the Pink Room. We first met in a green room. <laughs> we did, in... yeah, in the Netherlands. Was it the Netherlands? I have a different memory of that. I remember us meeting at Boston Music Rooms. Mm. Uh, oh fucking hell! Yes, that was when that was when Sean couldn't do the show because he had one of his A levels. Yeah, no, it was Eddie and Sean both had ones, but Sean did the show. He was revising in the green room before. Yeah, fucking um, hell! Ages ago. I know, right? And I think that was your third show. It, yeah, it was something, it would have been one of the, I mean, we played so much, but it's mad, isn't it? I mean, we haven't aged a bit. Really, Queen? <laughs> <laughs> we look I mean, exactly the same. <laughs> well, well, I certainly did not look like this. I have a really, really sad memory of that night. The first thing that happened was our sound engineer came back for the gig drunk mm. and started slagging us off over the talk back while we were Whoa. on stage. Yeah. Then pissed off our manager's girlfriend, like bumped into her. And then we ended the night with me and the other boys in happiness having an argument with a shame fan on the street because he had had a go at us <laughs> not being punk enough. <laughs> Fucking hell. Right. So, Charlie, you're you're in shame. Tell the audience, tell a bit about shame. What have you just done? What's coming out? Um, how have you been living through this pandemic vision? Um, so shame are five guys. We all grew up in the same area, South London. Started when I was 16, the rest of the boys were 17. We all sort of like went to school with each other in the same school year. And we started in Brixton at the Queen's Head. Then we gigged. 
for a long time. And then we put out first record Songs of Praise. And then we gigged for a long time after that. And then we recorded our second record, which came out uh, this January. But it was recorded last January uh, in Paris. Uh, and the record is called Drunk Tank Pink. Yeah. So, I mean, how have I been? I think it's weird. I think I've kind of gone on, whether it's survival mode or whatever, like I've kind of gone off the thought of like live gigs. I'm more focused on, I wanted pubs to open. It was weird. Like the first time pubs opened, I was just like, you know, I don't know about that. I don't want to go to one. It's very irresponsible and all of this. And then now I'm just like, fuck it. I can't do any more of this. You know what I mean? So I've been all right. I've just watched a lot of TV, fucking eating a lot of food. I fucking learned some yoga poses. You know, down with dogs. Which, one, which one's your favourite? I like child's pose. <laughs> <laughs> because at heart, you're definitely a child. Yeah, I don't know. There's something about being that close to my crotch. <laughs> you feel a stretch in all the right places. Now that you've got into yoga and you're finding more peace with yourself, what do you see the future of touring with Shane like? Because I don't, I don't know how, like, I can't imagine myself back on the road. I think in this time, we've had a lot of time to reflect on what we do differently. And I don't want to say it in a negative way. I want to say it more in, like, a fun way that I think there's going to be a lot of hypocrisy. Do you know what I mean? Everybody will want to, like, you know, the yoga will go out the window, the, like, the jogging, like, all of this shit. I think I can't really, I can't really imagine it because, like, going back to the survival thing, it's like, you don't, it's not going to do you any good to think about it. But when it does happen, it's like we've got so much to catch up on and we're going to have this whole new level of appreciation. And at the end of the day, do you know what I mean? When we come out of this, it's like people have earned the right to enjoy themselves. Do you know what I mean? Like we've been through so much trauma over the past year. Everybody has their own stories. Some are a lot worse than others, of course. And I just think there's going to sort of just be this, do you know what I mean? Just like hugging a stranger, you know, playing a fucking show but I think it becomes a lot more basic you know before I think about playing a show I just think about being in a room with my mates or meeting someone at the pub I miss spontaneity that's what I'm excited to get back I miss I miss grinder spontaneity (laughs) your your spontaneity is very heterosexual mine's incredibly gay uh talking of spontaneity (laughs) what was the most spontaneous moment that you can remember on tour where you were like, fuck this, I need to break out. Because in my experience, touring is very monotonous. Mm. And it's this like repeated day after day, like van, drink, show. Mm. Right now, I can't think of anything interesting. So give me something interesting. What was spontaneous? So we we did this show in Saint-Tropez. And <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so we got the offer. And it's basically this really, really rich guy owns this resort there and he has to run it all year round. And so he can't get to see any of the of the bands or musicians he likes. Right. Can't go to festivals. So he pays people to come to him and play the resort. So we got that and I was like, that sounds wicked. And we went and like played in a resort in San Tropez. And these kids came who were like fans of the band or something. And um and they gave me a bowl as a present of like, it's like, it's like absinthe 
um it tastes like licorice it has that sort of weird you know it has that sort of flavor yeah, yeah but yeah. i didn't know you were supposed to dilute it so with water because i was drinking 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 and like afterwards they were like we have the uh we have the after party for you and uh i was in the worst fucking french accent in the world but um, <laughs> so we, like, we like go into this club and we walk in and the, literally like the dj like stops the deck like a sentence I never thought I'd say. So it stops the deck or whatever, and it's like shimmering in the house, and then everybody <laughs> like whatever. And we got taken over to this table, and it was just twenty bottles of champagne. I mean, this was at the point as well where it was just like you know there'd be five of us in a room at our mates' halls in Manchester or something like that. Oh my god! Yeah, tell me about it. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, yeah, there's a few things are coming back to me now. Okay, so it's like, so the bouncers were getting angry with me because I noticed that every time I would just take a few bottles and give them out to random people and then they'd be replaced. And you weren't supposed to do that. So I was like getting drunker and drunker and drunker. And then we went to this club. uh, And I tried to pretend to be a waiter to like take people's drinks and like drink it. Did you ever do that? Like I, just, I went through one stage where it seemed to work. You know, you could just quickly swipe it off the table without them realizing. And then I stripped naked and we went into the sea. And I went pretty that's, far I mean, out. That's a classic. Like whenever you're in one of those places, like I remember we went, for some reason we went to Cannes to do a show. And there's always skinny dipping in the south of France. Like, who, why, what, and where? Saint-Tropez is south of France. <laughs> I mean, I thought it was wicked. I quite enjoy being, I quite enjoy, you know, the fresh air. Um, and you, are, you are a topless performer. Yeah, I don't, do you know what I mean? I've just always, you know, even though like, I came from, you know, being insecure about my weight, like, I just always yeah. feel, I don't know, I just, I, 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 just, I, just, I just, it just seems to make a bit more sense. Like, you know, I just feel more, I feel more comfortable, even though I could be uncomfortable in my flesh, if that makes sense. It's very, it's very interesting thing that you say that, you know, being on stage is a representation of yourself where possibly you are able to feel comfortable with mm. some of the insecurities that you suffer from. So mm. I know that for me, coming to terms with my like sexuality I mm. needed drag to be able to get up on stage and be at peace with some of like, you know, the past issues with people, you know, laughing at me because I was too feminine or mm. you know, not having the confidence to speak up at points. So I find that <laughs> fascinating. I I'd, I'd never would have connected the two. I just thought it was punk. Mm. No, it started, I mean, like, you know, I, it's weird that like, I look back on like school years and there's just something that, you know, I mean, even when I was there, I didn't mind sixth form, but it's like, even when I was there, I just didn't ever enjoy it. I knew I didn't want to go to uni. I didn't do all this stuff. And I wouldn't say that I was like, you know, in the grand scheme and I wouldn't want to sort of, you know, exaggerate my experience for, you know, if somebody's listening or whatever that's had a worse one. But I think it was definitely always the thing. I mean, like, I didn't lose my virginity till I was really late. I never was with any girls. Like, there were a lot, of, do you know what I mean? And I was like a chubby, I was basically like a chubby stoner. And it was always, you know. It oh, was, everyone it, loves a chubby, honey. Every, I know, but nobody did that. Nobody did for my teen years. And it was always very much a thing of like, um, 
you know, I think especially at that age, like I feel like it's weird, isn't it? Because we're in like a sort of uh, like a bubble of London or the people we know, whatever. But when I look, my sister's 17. Um, and when I look, when I would speak to her when she was going through secondary school, she knew so many more things about feminism and other subjects that I really feel like our generation still even at that age, you know what I mean? Like the jokes that were, the, the, the insults that were, that would be, you know, the homophobic insults that would be given to people and stuff like that. And the sort of, casualness of that whole sort of culture and you know with uh with like weight and stuff like that and not losing your virginity you know i mean like i feel Mm. like that can't be you know it was such a mindset such a sort of and not being with any girls and people not understanding why you 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 know you haven't kissed a girl and you haven't done things like that and so with weight it was another one of those things and i I remember we went on holiday we and my mates and um we were in like a, it was fucking awful and we're like we were in a club and we were all dancing and like there were like two girls and like one of them got with my friend and i was topless like as i said you know what i mean even though i was insecure and um and one of my friends got with one of the girls and then i went up to the other girl and i tried to talk or what i didn't know what i was doing and she just grabbed like a flab of my flesh and went no and I was <laughs> oh my god that it's really interesting that you talk about that because i i obviously had massive internal struggles but mm. my sexuality i mean i played a straight man so well like mm. Well, I have, you know, questions as to why some people weren't like, hi, you know, you're definitely gay. Can you, like, sort it out or something? Um, but I've never, like, you know, just talking to you about this, it's it's weight issues are so much more visible. Like, I could, I could box away my issues and throw it away, like, and then, lock, mm. you know, basically lock it up in a key um, mm. until until I had, like, nervous breakdown. But mm. let's let's go to that scene that you were you like chatted about that London scene that we all work in or exist in. Mm. How did you get involved? Because that's something that always interests me is why why some bands become part of this South London fat white family punk scene, and what is it? What do you think about your music made you like so present in that? I remember in sixth form, so that's when we started the band. Like, I remember music being sort of another sort of insecurity. I mean, I remember like I had these big pink, pink purple headphones, and I used to listen to the Beatles and Roxy music and stuff. Yeah. And everybody else was listening to grime, and it kind of felt like it was this sort of secret that I had. You know, what I mean, I might right. just try, you know, you try and show it to another person, and they just look sort of confused. Um, and where and where did that come from? Did that come from your parents or? Did you just get involved in like a different style of music, or did you? Because I've met a bunch of your friends, mm. and 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 sometimes I'm like, "What? This doesn't make sense. These guys are coming to a shame show, and it's yeah. fucking great." Because I think uh, there's too too much like people stick to their swim lane. Right? Mm. Mm. Um, mm. So like a bunch of your buddies when they turn up at the shame show, I'm like, "Here is here is what I want to see." But despite that, what was it that got you into that kind of music it was definitely my parents you know but it was also something I was naturally drawn to I mean going to the Roxy Music my mum showed me a lot of um we used to watch a lot of great documentaries when I was growing up you know one was on Keith Haring 
where she said this line, you know, which is still like stuck in my mind forever. And I remember I was watching it. And, you know, I wear, I wear have contacts by that time or glasses as well. And it was like an opening scene and Keith Haring was um, spray painting with the first people to do that. Well, I don't know if they were the first, but the people doing the graffiti on the subways, like Jean-Michel Basquiat and the other people. Mm-hmm. And I was looking at him and he was sort of like balding, skinny, um, you know, guy with glasses. And he was surrounded by like the most beautiful people I'd ever seen. And I was like, but you know what I mean? It didn't, especially at that age where it's very much a hierarchy thing. You think in terms of school when you think about people being picked on. And I was like, how come he's with all, do you know what I mean? Like with all the coolest people, obviously he is incredibly fucking cool, but I was just 11 <laughs> or whatever. And my mum was like, because um, everybody respects passion. But then right, um, right. I went, I, she, we, we watched, she showed me this one on Roxy Music. And I remember I heard, I watched the live performance, which was in it, of uh, In Every Dream Home, A Heartache. Such a great performance. I think I know the one you're talking about. Yeah, it was. It just, it blew my mind as, as, a, as, a, as, a, as a child, I guess. Um, and it was just the lyrics, you know, like the story and the darkness and all of this. And, you know, it's, it's, it, I think what we're saying as well is, you know, I mean, like swimming in different lanes, like, I think misconceptions might be that just because we listen to this type of music means we only listen to that genre yeah. where it's like a lot of different things. But so, so they were definitely a large part. And then going back to what we were saying about like getting into shame or getting into this scene, like which goes through school and stuff like at sixth form, like I'm sure you know what it's like, you know what I mean? Like it's all about what trainers and wearing branded clothing and all of this. And yeah. And I remember when we first went to the Queen's Head, there were all of these sort of, I mean, was, you know, all of these adults wearing like suits and flat caps and looking really fucking cool and playing this music that was like a hidden thing to me, you know, or like a hidden passion of mine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was the first time I was just like, you know, it was as if when I entered that place, I could really be myself. And obviously, when you leave school, I mean, that's so much a part of it, isn't it? Do you know what I mean? It's just sort of, you know, I'd go to school just wearing like a Carhartt jumper and jeans. <laughs> yeah. And it was never what I really, you know, I liked shirts and I liked all this stuff and I liked this different music and I liked, you know, that this this whole sort of subculture. It was where I just felt like comfortable. And it was the first, I think it's that moment when you realise that seeing people, I guess, yeah. who just didn't give a fuck, like He's, what anybody yeah. thought. yeah. Finding your people is such a like essential process for artists, but I think anyone in general. And I think I count us so lucky that we've, to an extent, found people that we can identify with and communicate with, because I think people spend years looking for that. So then let's talk about the windmill. It's synonymous, shame the windmill. It's like two parts of a sandwich. How did you feel at the time being the cheese in that? meat sandwich i mean it kind of just started off because like it was the first place we went and we were only playing we do all of these like we play in such fucking ridiculous places just all over south london but we take like drum kits on the bus and we play to like four people at the white horse in peckham and then you know it'd be like before us it'd be like a married couple with a tambourine and acoustic guitar and then afterwards it'd be like sort of like a 70 year old playing the triangle do you know what i mean it just didn't really like we we didn't really get it. We felt we're sort of very we're just like this doesn't really make sense. And we I guess also it's just like it's not to be too rude, but we weren't also hearing like any good music. 
And when we started going to the windmill, like Tim Perry said that we could put on our own night. And I went to, I did drama with Lottie, the lead singer of Goat Girl. And then I went to Camberwell and did a year of painting with Asha, the lead singer of Sorry. Yeah. So I knew these people and it was just sort of like, we used to invite them down. But all of those nights, they all used to be timed for school holidays. And because it was a pub, I mean, you know what you say about, you know, you see some of our mates and you're like, why are you at Shane Show? We would fill the place out. You know, there'd be 150 people there. And when we played, there would be 11. Because everybody would be outside, like, smoking and drinking and stuff. But we got to keep the cash. So it was weird. I mean, it's, it's one of those things, isn't it? I guess like, in lockdown, especially, you know, maybe it will happen for the rest of your life. But now everything's so reflective, you know. And you look back and you think about... I think you look at it in... I mean, the Queen said when that closed, I remember Lennon, Charlie's dad, our drummer's dad, who's on the cover of Drunk Tank Pink, our record, said to us on that night, it was like a sort of shock. And he was like, this is the first end of an era you boys are seeing. And it really sort of did, do you know what I mean? And so when you grow, I think as you grow up and you see all of these places, the, the whole point is that they're always kind of hanging by a thread. You think, how could this, you know, be so true? Like obviously the windmill has lasted a long time. I just liked as well, it was kind of like the Queen said in the way of, I guess, sort of safe spaces. Do you know what I mean? Like I can't yeah. think of a better sort of phrase or whatever, like places that you can go into and, you know, you might bump into people and you can really be yourself and you can watch great music and you can have a chat. And they're all different types of people, like, hanging around there. Um, but, yeah, so to be the meat in the sandwich, I guess, I'd like to think, you know, it tasted good. <laughs> I mean, I, there's always, like, a rose-tinted kind of element of perspective. And you always look back and we go, oh, that was such an amazing period. It was a bit of a mess, to be honest. Like, do you remember mm. I used to do karaoke nights at the Five Bells, which was another of those kind of, like, They were so good. <laughs> they were so fucking good. And it was another of those spaces that was hanging on like by the string. And it was this very bizarre situation where thousands of Goldsmith students would pour, would pour through the door to do some karaoke. And then you weren't that happy with it because it's not a Goldsmith's like scene. Yeah. But it was the only way they were keeping going. So you kind of had this venue that really suffered from like being overtaken by queens like me. And I just, I just took hiss. I would like storm around the venue. I'd open doors that were not supposed to be open. I'd go in the yeah. kitchen and like set fire to some stupid shit or climb in the freezer. It, they were iconic times, but again, rose tinted glasses. It was a fucking mess. I don't ever want to go back to that time. <laughs> oh, you almost need someone who can sort of take those risks because that's what's so infectious about those places that confidence do you know what i mean like there would yeah, be yeah, times yeah. when you know it was like even the volume that we were doing it at and it was just like you're right like it felt like we were a little bubbled you know what i yeah. mean it was just like here was the sort of pub and then here was this sort of like own universe of sort of enjoyment but i think at that time all you take comfort in is that you're smiling and the other fuckers aren't so you know what i mean like and and the funny thing is the day we the first event i turned to sam who i was running it with and i was like we have six months here and then we're out and it all came true like one day they were like they're just turning into a spoons and i was like oh that's a real shame but like that's how scenes are created ours didn't last as long as i'd hoped but you know horses for courses honey horses for courses yeah
Um, so we're going to play a little game as a kind of like Wicked. moment in a podcast because Wicked. we chat for hours about stupid shit. This game, though, it's like the four disciples, but except it's called Charlie, Eddie, Josh, or Sean. Um, <laughs> okay. And it's quick fire round. And basically, you need to answer within seconds. You can say yourself as well, but I'm just going to go for it. Worst yeah. drunk. Oh, Charlie Forbes. Most likely to get hit by a train. Josh. Worst driver. Josh. <laughs> Worst to share a bed with. Uh, Eddie or Ford. Best handshake. Sean. Best cook. Eddie. Worst cook. Maybe Forbes or Josh. <laughs> Most likely to kill a bear with his own hands. Eddie, definitely. <laughs> Most likely to become religious. <laughs> Eddie, definitely. <laughs> Who would you invite round to tea with your parents? Sean. Most mysterious? Eddie. Most likely to get in a fight? <laughs> Eddie. Most creative? Ooh, I'd, I'd say all of them. Uh, most likely to watch porn as soon as they wake up? <laughs> Josh. Oh, I knew it was going to be Josh. Uh, who's going to be admitted to the loony bin first? Uh, Eddie or Forbes? End up in jail, Josh, but for a really dumb reason for like for like throwing chewing gum on the pavement or something. <laughs> uh, who doesn't shower on tour, Josh? Who's gonna upset the public? Oh, yeah, maybe Forbes. Okay, so that must have happened. Tell me about that time. Well, just through Twitter, I guess. You know what I mean? Like, I don't even have Twitter anymore, right? I know Forbes is very active, and it's just, I mean, we do all these interviews, like, because I do the majority of. I do a lot of the press. I remember like, at this time, like he like did a tweet slagging off Catfish and the Bottle Man, and everybody thinks I run the Twitter. Do you know what I mean? So I get, I didn't, you know what I mean? I didn't really know about it, and I'd be in an interview, and they'd be like, "So where do you uh, hate uh, Catfish and the Bottle Man so much?" Why? Like, why are your interviewers always French or all your? I don't know. They're, you know, we know a lot of Frenchmen and French women. Are you big in France? Because the story is nobody's big in France. We do well in France. We do some of our best shows. Ever that's bizarre. I, I yeah. like France is one of those places where like you're either like beloved or you're literally chucked out like they would throw cigarettes. Like, really, I've always really enjoyed it. The rest of the band, I think, you know, like I've, I just fucking I love it. Like we recorded our record out on the outskirts of Paris, and it's just oh wow, I fucking. I know, I love everything about it. Like, I, I really, I love, you know, Paris, like, I just, so fucking cliche, but I fucking love that place. Like, we did, um, we did a month of writing when we're back in, like, when we first started Happiness, we did a month of writing mm. in Paris. And I think we all really? got ill. Yeah, we all got ill because we were staying in this, like, flat that was um, a little bit sweaty. And I think mm. that breeds bacteria. But our mm. love for Paris grew because when we were 16... What do you mean it was sweaty? Like, in the air? It was just, like, it was just Parisian. It's just, like, a lot of heat and a lot of smells and a lot of, like, bacteria. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. Anyway, uh, the love for Paris kind of came from when uh, we were 16. Like, so we... People, members of Happiness, we played together in different bands and there was this one band where mm. a guy invited us out to Paris to play a few shows. And we were 16 at the time. And he was like, I'm going to pay for your accommodation. I'm going to pay for your travel. I'm going to pay for everything. We were like, sweet. Mm. Um, things took a turn for the worst. 
when we clocked that like the the room the accommodation they set us up in was mirrored all on one side Whoa. okay then there were a lot of photographers and cameras and kind of just wait what where in the flat huh yeah not in the flat but i'm pretty sure there were cameras set up in there and um and then there was he made us play at this gay night and there were all these like parisian gays like fawning over basically 16 year old boys and i think like we were kind of pawns in like some weird kind of uh fetish world this guy did this with multiple bands that i know was like invite Wait, them what? <laughs> yeah he never i like i don't think he ever did anything that would send him to jail but he's got a bank load of pictures of 16 year old boys in bands and i mean it's a look right and as long as you don't do anything bad maybe that's fine but there are you know you get these weird characters that you meet on tour who are overly obsessed with the concept of you yeah yeah your existence and your kind of bandness tell me about a time when a fan just like stepped over the line well there was a time when somebody was giving out money like on the streets to like eddie and sean and shit like after our show in san francisco um can't remember i remember it was really weird like to get the bill like the 50 dollar bill or whatever it was like sean had to reach into the guy's pocket to get it <laughs> it was all just weird stuff i mean mainly I think it's mainly just sort of people offering you, you know, like offer you drugs or whatever. It's just like you could be like knackered and think what you what you're saying about like the the sort of fantasy or like the idea of what it is. And it's just like I remember we played in Australia. Like I've had people get like angry at me because I've said no or whatever. And it's just like fucking hell, mate. Do you know what I mean? It's just like yeah, yeah, yeah. we were playing in Melbourne. We literally like just finished. And it was like a fifty degree show because it was like summer. Were no fucking fans in the venue and the doors were closed so so josh like threw up and i was like standing and this guy came up and he was like and he was like do you want to do a line of speed with me and i was just like and i was like no 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 i'm all right and he was like why do you want to fucking do a line of speed with me like you think you're better than me and i was just like fucking hell do you know what i mean it's that idea of like you know what people think you have to be fucked or like drunk or like yeah. wanting to do drugs or like trying to sleep with people do you know what i mean like yeah. that sort of idea of this sort of mentality where it's kind of like you just want to do a really good or you know you want to do a really good gig and you want to enjoy yourself but not at the expense of anyone else or at the expense of yourself do you know what i mean it's just like you don't what you're not like a monkey do you know what i mean a fucking no. clapping monkey or whatever do you know what i mean it's just like things get weird don't they they always get weird on tour what would be what would be the item that you would bring on tour to kind of save your ass I've got it. I've got it with me now. So these hold a very special place in my heart. These are peanut M and M's. The reason, like, I think when I first sort of fell in love with them, we were in Germany, and I used to. I go through phases. I'm quite obsessive and like obsessive and excessive. And um, my first one was Fanta Orange, and I think mainly because, like, you know, I definitely did like my fair share of drinking on tour and stuff like that. And, you know, I would see sort of Fanta as this sort of like shot of sugar that I needed to wake me up in the morning. Oh, God. Oh, of, God, girl. That's I knew, a lot. I knew it was a bit too much when like, I remember one point we were staying. I'd gone to bed really pissed. 
And in my dream, I was in like the Amazon jungle. Yeah. And I was looking out and it was like sunshine and birds chirping. And I was at the top of a waterfall. Fantastic. Like a hundred, yeah, a hundred, a hundred feet up or whatever. And I was looking out and I jumped up and I land in this water. But it isn't water, it's Fanta Orange. And I was <laughs> swimming around with my with my mouth open. And I woke up and I was like, I think that's a bit too much. But um, and then these MMs, I don't know, like I was I, I I found them in Germany and I wasn't drinking at the time. And I remember our tour manager at the time, Dr. Keto, saying that it's something to do with when you stop drinking and you and you've been doing it for a while. Um, it's just so normal on tour, do you know what I mean? You get to a venue and you have a drink. Uh. Yeah, <laughs> tell me about it. That you, um, your body is used to a certain level of sugar coming in. Yeah. So um, my big nights in would be me and Netflix and a pack of peanut M and M's, and it was, it was like three three big forms of comfort just like all together. Let's talk about Kiko. Yeah. <laughs> so I remember meeting Kiko like I'd gone this weird <laughs> trip, and I ran up to Forbes in full drag. And was like, Charlie, Charlie. He was like, I don't know you. <laughs> and ran away. But after the night was over, I couldn't sleep. So I came and found <laughs> you guys. Uh, Where was this? End of the road. Oh, right. Yeah, 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 yeah. I got you. And you guys turned up. And Kiko's, and I just remember climbing into Kiko's van, which was leopard print on the inside. And in that moment, I was sure, like, I was just being wrapped up to go back to the womb or something. It was... <laughs> but um, what happened to Kiko? What happened to Kiko? Um, I mean, I want to say, first off, that, like, you know, I do love Kiko. Like, he's a very, 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 very funny person. And we had a lot of good times with him. I think we just... We, we, we did such intense tours. You know, like, the one we did in America with him, that was seven weeks. And we did drove 10,000 miles. We drove... We did 10,000 miles. Yeah. Like about 2,000 of that was on a plane. So he drove like 8,000 miles in like six weeks. And we just done a lot with him. And I think everybody was just exhausted at that stage, sort of mentally yeah. and physically. You know, we were so in the throes of it. But it was just, it's weird to have these sort of life experiences, I guess, when you're uh, fucking 19 or whatever, or 20, about, you know, I'd always worked in kitchens and stuff like that, but it's very different when your reliance is quite great upon someone. Do you know what I mean? Like you were talking earlier with the sound engineer at the Boston Music Room or whatever. Um, yeah. You know, it's it's a it's a fragile um, relationship, I guess. You need them just as much as they need you. And if you miss a flight, for example, or something like that, which we didn't do with Kiko, but it's just that if something like that happened, then, it takes such a toll on you, especially, you know, also financially when you don't have any fucking cash, just like all these different things. You're very aware that you're very skint and you're relying on a lot of different elements to go right. I've met a lot of tour managers in my time. And I've met tour managers that are like, look at all this that I've got. I'm going to give it to the band and then we're going to have the best tour ever. And then I've met tour managers you know, who don't want to be friends with you, who just want to, like, do the job and then fuck off. You're right. It's such, like, a personal experience. And you're living with these people in ways that I don't think even people who are married do. Touring is the, is an existence whereby, like, you know, the only time you get to yourself is in the shower, right? And yeah. 
And even in the shower, you have to be quick enough so that the person you're sharing a room with yeah. gets to have a shower too before you leave. But the bus drivers are always fucking weird. They're like notoriously the strangest people. On our UK and our Europe one, we had a guy who's generally called Billy the Bastard. And he was like, I'm not joking, like he was probably the worst human being I have ever met in my entire life. It was just like everything that came out of his mouth. Oh, just, God. It was just, un, you know, and it was like, like I remember, you know, like the, the, how to how I'd summarize him was a lot. One of our last shows was in Brussels, yeah, yeah. And we we came in, well, um, Europeans, um, and yeah, they always are. they're fucking amazing. Do you know what I mean? You actually get treated yeah. like a human being. And we yeah. went in and they um made food, and it was like a really nice spread. You know what I mean? You fucking fish or whatever. <clears throat> and Billy was like, oh, "I fucking hate this." And we were like, what do you mean? He was just like, no, nah, fuck this. I'm going to Pizza Hut. And just sort of, you know what I mean? That sort of like any sort of change or sort of like, you know, show of kindness was immediately rejected and he just went to Pizza Hut. So, you know, it's, he was just, you know, it's it's just a weird job, isn't it? Do you know what I mean? You drive yeah. only through the nights yeah. for like 250 days of the year. That existence is just... It's on a different level. I don't, can't say I understand. I wish I no. could. Uh, <laughs> I would have got on a lot better with a lot of crew if I did. Moving on to the next part of our time together. Yes. I wanted to uh, speak to you about support tours. Who mm. is the encounter, the musician encounter that has shocked you? In a good way or a bad way? Both. Let's go Let's go bad first and then we'll go good. I mean, all right, not a tour yet. Okay, I'll say this. Like, when we were starting out, this was, it was, um, we've maybe been a band for a year or something like that. And we were playing a venue that you've, you've you know, you've probably played. I can't fucking remember the name of it. It's in Hackney, I think. And the lead person, the headliner, was genuinely labelled as the drummer from <laughs> and I have never met such a twat in my life. He was only in <laughs> for like one recording, I think. Right. And to show this, he took himself so seriously. You know, sunglasses on all the time. He probably yeah. sold about 33 tickets and 150 oh, cap, you know, with his girlfriend or whatever. And <clears throat> just walking around with an air of 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 fucking smog and um and josh broke his foot on stage when we were playing the last song what we carried yeah we carried josh into the dressing room which wasn't even our dressing room it was like you know there was just one and it was supposed to be shared and josh was lying there an 18 year old kid with a broken foot like in agony as we were like calling an ambulance to come and his line was, excuse me, can you get out of my dressing room? I have a show to do. <laughs> but, but. Yeah, yeah. And we were literally just like, are you fucking kidding me? So that's one of the worst. I reckon one of the best, I mean, I don't know, like, one of my favourite, I reckon, just because it was so surreal, was when yeah. we did Jules Holland. Right. Um, We did, so, so when you do it, yeah, you do like, one song for the longer video or whatever and then you take a 10 minute break 
and um then you do a lot you do it live and <laughs> after we did our set i remember walking out we we're having a cigarette in front of the studio we just done it and plan b and the lead singer of Snow Patrol both walked <laughs> up to me from different directions at the same time to say that they really enjoyed it. And I was just like, you are two very different parts of my, <laughs> of, of my musical life colliding together. And before we did One Riz Alive, Plan B gave me the wink, like before yeah. we did it. And, um, <laughs> so that's one of the weirdest. I don't know. It's, I guess it's weird, like, just in, in general, like, when you meet anyone, I mean, even before we'd met you guys, when we did that, I don't really remember the Boston Music Room, but that was probably where we first met. But I really remember being in the Netherlands or something. And I know that Forbes had shown me you guys when we first started, you know what I mean? When we were literally doing our mm. first practices. So it's even that sort of strange, you know, because I think your stuff is on SoundCloud. And so it's even strange, you know what I mean? When you, it's, it's just nice when it's like we meet people like you or whatever. And it's just like, when people are just sound and like, you know, You'll meet someone as well who might judge you on your music instead of your personality, I think. Yeah, and I can't stand that. At the very beginning of being in a band, there was a lot of snobbery. Like, I was part and parcel of it. was like, we judged people based on their musical ability. And Mm. it meant that, and it was part of, like, being in this weird kind of obsessive band structure, being obsessed with... Mm the best and mm. really, i really struggled to make relationships because of that yeah it's weird isn't it do you know what i mean it's just like nobody needs to be such a wanker do you know what i mean like every, you know it's just and it's and it's also it's just sort of like you know to to, to base your judgment on on, on something like that is it's clearly someone's form of like expression do you know what i mean but it's just like you know, it goes back to what my mum said about respect and passion. It's just like if somebody's had some sort of guts or whatever to go up and do it and try and like, yeah. you know what I mean, and, and do their truth, then I think it should be your right to, you know, as long as they're not spreading hate or whatever. But you know what I mean? It should be your right to be like, fair enough. But I'll go going back as well to shock. I've just thought of two other funny ones. There was a time I met Billie Eilish. <laughs> we were touring Australia at Laneways um, in 2018 in February. And at that point, she was just sort of like taking off, but she would yeah. get, she was on the bill with us. And I remember it was our first day. We were in Adelaide at the festival, and it was like nine in the morning. And I was drink. It was like eleven in the morning. And I was drinking, and I went over to the water fountain. And then, like, <clears throat> you know, this girl came up with her mum, and I was just like, "Yo, how's it going? I'm Charlie." And she was like, "Hey, I'm Billy." And I was just like, "Oh, do you want to have like a beer or whatever?" And she was like, "I'm 15." And I was like. <laughs> Or something like that, till I'm 15 or 16. But at the same time, I was kind of like, so? You know what I mean? Like, not like <laughs> yeah, I yeah, 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 yeah. Like Americans, man, they don't understand. I was, I was just picturing my 15 or 16-year-old self yeah. say no to a drink. On yeah. that same festival was when I also walked into the internet's green room, thinking it was the Wi-Fi area. The internet? Yeah. Oh, the internet. internet. Sorry, I was I got confused. I thought there was a green room with internet in it. It said the internet on it, and I was like, I must be in here. And I walked in, and it was like all like Steve Lacey and all that lot sat on the sofa. But I just thought they were getting Wi-Fi too, so I was like stood there like looking around for the Wi-Fi, and they were like watching me, very confused. I had these like super short, short shorts then, and no t-shirt, and a cowboy hat. And what you wore super short shorts? Yeah, I, that was my. I wore that for two, 
for two weeks. Well, it's because I always hate shorts. Like, I find it so hard to look good in shorts. Shorts are a crime against fashion. Like, I they really are. So I was like, if I'm going to go for it, I'm going to go for it. So I had these pair of trousers that I cut and my pockets like came down way, you know what I mean? <laughs> like, on, on the flesh of my thighs and um, the shorts just, they, they sort of, you know, they, they veered around the edges of my crotch. It's not a very pleasant image, but um, yeah. And then I wore a cowboy hat and that was my look for Australia for two weeks. That's quite an iconic look. Um, talking of <laughs> iconic looks, I've gone for Jerry today. Reason being that one of the weirdest encounters I've ever had is at a shame show. Mm-hmm. Was Mel B happens to be a shame fan, mm-hmm. which which just blows my mind on on so many levels because I I remember watching like the Spice Girls tour video as a six year old. Like no wonder I'm gay. But, <laughs> uh, when um the the <laughs> <laughs> the reason that me and Mel got on was because we both clocked that we were trying to flirt with with Sean at the same time. <laughs> there was this bizarre, like, kind of like toing and froing, and then we, I went up to Mel. Mel like, B, yeah. Ash, another day in the life of Sean. I, I sexy Sean, like everyone calls him that. I went up to Mel and I was like, "I'm gonna win this one, honey," and uh, she was like, in her like. I'm not going to do her accent. But she was like, no. Yeah, no, Ash, no. No. Um, and then we went to to the Spice Girls show. That was a great fucking at Wembley. That was fucking nuts. I'd, I just I just can't get over But that will save that for another day. <laughs> Wait, what happened with Oh, do you remember she told me, like, I was, like, doing my thing, oh, enjoying fuck. myself. yeah. Oh, yeah, fuck that. And fuck she that. was like, why are you trying so hard? Yeah. And yeah, I turned to her, I turned to her and I said, babe, I'm just being me. Now, <laughs> I'm not saying that I'm the cause as to why she cancelled her festival slot, but she was so shook in that moment that <laughs> I can see a sequence of events that leads to yeah. that. But yeah, she needs, she needs to get a fucking grip. <laughs> take her down ash oh yeah i'm gonna take her down with this look target like... boy. <laughs> Bow, pow, pow, pow. like as a general whole going back to what you were saying about respect for passion the reason i connect with you guys uh, as a band and and as individuals is because from my perspective you know i've grown up in this industry and go through the process of coming out and the the people that I always knew would support me wherever we were and whenever I turned up would be you and you know it means it means it means so much to be you know at those festivals and to see you guys and know that it'll be like a mutual support there I think um that is why um you know why I still enjoy being in this industry because of that kind of mutual respect Mm, of course always i mean yeah i mean i don't you know I, yeah i just love you, <laughs> oh, you too, dude. it's as um, simple you know of course it's not as simple as that i don't want to you know in any way you know you know sounds as if i'm belittling belittling anything or anything like that but i think uh, you know it's 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 
it's just beauty and passion and you know yeah. those are fucking you know those are those are unfortunately quite rare things or maybe like rarely uh supporting things or whatever but it's just um it's just love isn't it? it's just love um, <laughs> well um i very much look forward to when we are together what is your plan what is shane's plan what so the album's out mm. and have you got a tour booked or are you still sitting we've got tours booked and like to be honest with you like you know i think they're all booked now and everything like that and that's like including america and stuff but it's like you know i'll look at them and i'll sort of improve but it's not like i'm i'm you know like maybe before when i'm like oh i can't go with work wait to go back to yeah. newcastle or something like that i just like it's one of those things where it's like i'll believe it when i see it kind of thing also it's just sort of you know going back to what i was saying about like i'm firstly thinking about you know what going to the pub or something like that it's because it's just like you know to savor you know these moments with our friends do you know what i mean like it's going to be so important when we come back you know all of these conversations and just sort of like days spent sitting out and drinking and stuff and just sort of you know no hesitation about calling someone inviting someone you know hugging someone just sort of like letting things flow and come back to normal i think it's just ah fuck it you know maybe it'll be the summer of love i think we could all use fucking use one yeah the third summer of love i believe um yeah i'm, <laughs> I'm wishing big time i think green man you're on green man or is it end of the road that you're on um i think we're on green man we've only done green man once that was where you i think you were doing drag in between our set yeah and yeah, you're yeah. Had happiness just playing and then we were on after or something like maybe? I don't know. We were like in and out of that. So I'd love to go back and enjoy it properly. Yes, this is the year to do it. Um, I'm, I'm, my fingers are crossed for Green Man. Oh, I fucking can't wait. I can't wait. It's going to be so good. Well, There's so much time to make up for. Yeah. And uh, time is what we've run out of now. I'm sorry. <laughs> but it's been an absolute pleasure honey honestly thank you so so much i feel very honored and very privileged to have had any of your company and any of your conversation oh you too my darling it's always a pleasure seeing you and i very much look forward to a world in which we can exist as one <laughs> i'll be in that bedroom for real soon oh yeah you will <laughs> and so we bring the curtains down on another pink room thanks to charlie steen who reminded me that passion is essential to artistry and if there's one thing uh, i'd like you to take away from this week's episode is to be passionate find your passion provide for your passion Get those provisions in. Be your passion. That way the world is your oyster. Thank you, of course, to World of Wonder for their help on this episode. To find out what made Holiday Sidewinder say this. Well, none of us were paying rent or bills. It was wild. It was actually fucking crazy. Like, sometimes some of us would have, like, three pounds left and, like, share it to buy each other a bread roll or whatever. Like, really grim. And remember, queens, what happens on tour gets shared in the pink room. Ta-ra for now! <laughs> <laughs>